This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. For the first time, welcome. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials TGIF DCT here on Clubhouse. Uh, we gather here every Friday at noon Eastern to talk about all things DCTs. Uh, so we're excited to have you. If uh, this time is a conflict, we do always make these available on our podcast that can be found on all major platforms um, on the Monday following the Clubhouse live session. So while you're here, you can raise your hand. Um, we'll bring you up on the stage at the halfway point to ask questions of our great host today, Ingrid, um, who's coming to us from Medible. But uh, we will get started here in just a moment. Hey, Paige. Hey, Jane. Good morning, Ingrid. I kicked it off with a, a half-baked intro, so I welcome you to fill in what I have missed, but just give a quick intro on why we're here and we're ready to get going here. I don't think you missed anything important. Um, I am in a noisy space, so I apologize for that proactively. But first, um, yeah, welcome to the TGIF DCT Clubhouse, our Friday roundup of topics from members on all things DCT. Usually we get to talk to our special guests for about half an hour and then we let you, the audience, ask questions. Um, so we'll get started right away here. And the topic today is one that I've been super excited about because I think we are all in this DCT domain to try to make things better for patients and sites. But really, I think a lot of people started this with the idea that patients want to participate, but it's hard. How could we make that easier? Now we want to know, is that actually happening? And when I met Ingrid this spring at a conference, she talked to me a little bit about some data that she and her team have collected. And I literally started drooling on her shoes saying, I think you need to come and share that data with our audience in the clubhouse. And I'm going to let you introduce yourself, Ingrid. I'll go on mute for a moment and then we'll kick it off. Oh, thank you, Jane. Yeah, so delighted to be here and to talk about this really important topic. Um, I'm a cancer epidemiologist, PhD by training, but I've spent um, quite a lot of my um, research career working on disparities, trying to reduce both incidence of disease and improve outcomes across the spectrum. Um, I lived in Africa for some time, you know, where the healthcare system is quite different than it is in the United States. I lived in Europe, similar, you know, healthcare systems do differ around the world and trying to think, you know, how can we make things uh, more convenient, more enjoyable, right? Even when you're ill, are there things that we can do to enhance people's lives and help them? Um, and so that is a lot of what I think I've been working on, um, really started in this space in mobile health in about 2014 and was focusing on, um, oh, Jane, maybe. So for the new reservation, you have a $25 to destination. Chicken is for the food and beverage in the hotel. There we go. Um, so I've been, you know, focused on both the, the patients themselves, whether they're in the healthcare setting 
or in a clinical trial um, and the people around them. So their family and friends that often act as caregivers. And you know, I know a lot of people have been following um, the number of stories, you know, Michael J. Fox and Tracy Pollan and her work as a caregiver, you know, and, and all the different components that you really end up struggling with. And what do you know what to do? How do you figure that out? It's a whole new, a whole new world. And I think that's a lot of what, um, you know, I look at it as sort of this holistic experience that's happening within the family unit and the friend unit. And, and I think that's, a humanistic way to think about this. Um, so it's not necessarily about bringing something else new into people's lives, but trying to approach them and reach them where they are and make things simple and easy for them from that perspective. And Ingrid, can we Stanford on? those trials and how that motivated so, you yeah you didn't get most of what you said it went in and out at least on my end i don't know if other people are experiencing that would be the elevator so <laughs> when i met you yes. this summer you told me a little bit about your life at stanford and how that motivated you and maybe you could start there sure yeah so i was a um i did a lot of breast cancer prostate cancer and ovarian cancer research worked with international groups um, and the Gilda Radner registry out in um, Buffalo, New York. And I was working with some participants in a breast cancer study as a, as a principal investigator. And it was funded by the DOD, which I know is surprising, but the DOD does fund quite a lot of health research. Um, and this project, we were looking for participants around um, coming in and helping us collect specific information and collect specific sample types, um, breast interstitial fluid to be precise, to look at proteins, to see if we could discern when someone had a benign lesion in the breast versus a, a malignant lesion. And I had a whole lot of women that wanted par to participate, but they said, I can't, I can't drive that far. I can't take off work. I have kids. I can't find daycare. It's too expensive. Um, you know, all sorts of things that were impediments to these women, epidemiology. And he said, well, I think you need to meet this uh, young physician who is doing her dermatology residency here. And so I met Michelle, the CEO of Medible, and we talked about, you know, what we wanted to achieve and we really aligned. And so I actually joined Medible to try to bring this decentralized clinical trial concept to the field and to, to really push it. Um, which I think, you know, we've been very successful doing. And of course, you know, COVID has also made people realize you can do more things locally, right down the street, or even remotely from your own home. And, and that's been absolutely fabulous. So I'm, I'm really delighted that we're kind of at this point now uh, that it's, we've made tremendous strides. Oh, I'm first, thank you for sharing that that really hearing that physician perspective is sometimes missing from the conversation um, and so i really want the audience to take away that this was a physician to physician inspiration moment where ingrid and michelle saw what was possible and how mm -hmm. they could work together to transform the clinical trial experience on behalf of patients I, I feel sometimes that in the sea of, and it's my air quotes here, marketing speak, it gets lost. So I'm really glad you brought that back. And I hope you can hear me pretty clearly now. Yeah, it's a lot better, Jane. And I think I'd also add to that, I had before, um, and as part of why I was even thinking of this concept, um, I had been working with a federally qualified health clinic um, over in the Oakland area, serving over 11,000 um, individuals and their families. And that clinic had a difficult time getting women who had abnormal mammograms to come back in and, you know, finalize the screening, make sure that the, the breast lesion was actually, you know, nothing of significance. And they really were concerned with that. So we started a text messaging program and we evaluated it with that uh, federally qualified health clinic and the clinical team that was there. Um, and that 
ended up showcasing really that just a simple reminder in uh, words that mattered to that group of participants and a tone that was very welcoming and non-threatening and didn't provoke kind of anxiety over, you know, we get worried about abnormal test results. You know, are they really abnormal or is it just need more investigation to showcase that it's actually not an abnormal situation? And so then they adopted that text messaging program. And that was um, with funding from the California Breast Cancer Association. So that was pretty exciting. And that really made me realize, you know, this is this is a simple, easy way that we can help reach people um, and make it simple and easy for them too, right? So from the clinical perspective, it was easily doable because they could just set up these automated systems. And from the participant receiving side, you know, they're already on their phones, they're already using it as a standard, you know, every day. So that that was a great success early on. And we published, we published that, I think it was back in 2014, actually, um, or 2016. Yeah. That's so interesting, too, because, um, all right, I'm going to put on my <laughs> take my old pharma hat off of the shelf and put it back on for a second. When I was at Roche, we tried some of those methods too around the same time, actually, Ingrid. We didn't publish the data. But what was fascinating to me at that time was just how hard it was to convince the project teams that it was worth trying at that time text messaging through an app, not to their direct phones, uh, well, we couldn't know their identity. So we had to set up an entity where that could be shielded. But even in a tiny number of patients who adopted that methodology, we were able to demonstrate statistically significant difference in adherence and protocol completion. So can you say more a little bit about your metrics from that study? I'm not asking you to memorize them or, you know, <laughs> yeah. Time ago, but. yeah, so that was a, it was a pilot study because that's what the clinic wanted to do. Um, so we had about 30 people, 30 women, um, and, you know, we did show a statistical improvement in return for the mammogram results. And now they've been using that for a number of years. And um, so I think that they're quite pleased with it and it's, it's a very efficient system for them. Um, I haven't followed up with them recently to find out um, the medical director has actually since moved on, Carlos Landano. Um, but I think that there's there's quite a value in that. And I would add in some of our, our recent research, um, so back backstory on this is we got um, several fast track uh, phase one, phase two awards from NIH, from Small Business Innovation Research Program in 2016 and 2017 in which we proposed to develop specific apps with stakeholder input. So the first thing was to go to all the the folks that would be involved. So the caregivers, the patients themselves, the clinical teams, to ask them what was the, what was the most important thing that they wanted out of a communication tool um, that would help inform the clinical team when the patient wasn't in the clinic. And this was pre-COVID, right? So in a way it was fortuitous because we were ahead of the game and ready. Um, so we gathered that information in a lot of interviews. We did a lot of user testing. You know, we put up example ideas. We had people envision what they would want and then drafted that up as ideas and got their input. And we did this with um, Duke and Stanford from the clinical side. And then we ended up developing um, specific apps, one for the patient and one for the caregiver that would um, help them when they were out of the clinic. And we then moved to testing that in the clinical setting at Kaiser um, Permanente uh, and all their oncology clinics. And we partnered with several um, really brilliant oncologists at Kaiser and folks from the research group um, also at Kaiser. And they did all of the patient interaction involvement. Um, so we at Medable did, did not do any of that. Um, so we didn't have any PII or anything um, in our in our data set. But we we did test, you know, how how does this work? How did they what did they like about it? What didn't they like? And some of the key findings um, that have been published, there are a number of papers that are in process of being published. So I have to talk about those in a little more vague um, sense. But from those that have been published and presented at um, 
conferences like such as ASCO, you know, part of what we learned was the caregivers, when they were shown symptoms to report about the patient, they were so appreciative because they said it reduced their stress. They knew what was important to measure from the oncologist's perspective in order to provide that information back to the clinical team. And not only was it easy, you know, they could regularly do it. Um, over time, we saw that it took them uh, fewer minutes um, to actually complete the same standard kind of ECOAs remotely because they were familiar with the questions. So it was, you know, the burden was very low, um, but the psychological impact was tremendous. Uh, and in some really interesting uh, informational interviews with the folks that were participating, both the patients and the caregivers, you know, their, their concept was, if this information is important for the clinical team to know, to make sure that my care is the best possible or my patient's care is the best possible, I'm 100% in. I'm going to report what they need to know, right? I'm going to give my honest assessment every time I see an EPRO or ECOA come up, I will do that. And they received benefits from that emotionally. So I think, you know, there's lots of ways to support people remotely and then also to provide more detailed information to the clinical team um, so that they can help make any adjustments to the treatment plan or follow up in a, in a faster, more robust fashion and make sure that things are going smoothly at home you know, if they see a trajectory over time, and that's why longitudinal data is so, so important. Um, if they see that trajectory going downhill over time or missing certain marks, right, then they can reach out and, and that then reduces their time commitment. And, and I think it ends up providing significantly better care. So let me unpack that just a little bit, because in my own P brain, what I'm hearing is that the active involvement by the caregiver in this data collection process helped them feel like they were fulfilling their role as a caregiver and also helped them understand how their loved one was doing. Is that a fair way to say it, Ingrid? Yeah, I think I think that is. And I would also add what they also felt was that they were better able to support their loved one because they, they knew exactly what they were supposed to do. Right. right? The guidelines were clear. So interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Like yeah, the psychosocial part, you know, from an engagement perspective, think about when you engage in something versus when you don't, right? And, and what are the components, right? There's this behavioral component, a cognitive component, you know, the psychosocial science component, um, which actually a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. John Doherty, and I reported out in a paper, an editorial piece on this recently. You know, how do we how do we think about an engagement model? What are the components of a human that you need to think about to 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 put those um, to put those elements into play in a clinical setting, right? Because you know we all know things like TikTok, how that keeps us engaged. But how do you do that when you're talking about a clinical? Um, situation. And it, you know, it is a little bit different. Um, so can you summarize the, the high notes of your editorial? Yeah, sure. So it's really, it's what we proposed was a three phase conceptual model on the process of kind of user engagement with e-health apps. Um, and it does what we, what we pulled from was published literature and knowledge from the clinical space about that psychosocial, behavioral, and cognitive science, and how then we incorporate that into a model to really enhance user engagement um, so that there's positive feedback, um, participants are being appreciated for what, they, what they're um, inputting, what they're describing as the experience at home, um, and that they're feeling uh, valued. I think a lot of times um, there's this fear and anxiety and a lot of expectations that are really hard to meet, say in a clinical trial. But if you have things laid out in a very standardized way, you know, things flow down a path, you know, it's like 
you, you want to ride your bicycle somewhere. So, you know, you need to get the bicycle out of the garage, you need to get on the bicycle and you need to pedal to that destination, right? So how do we do that in a clinical setting and, and, and provide a, a pathway and, and a set of steps to people without it being a burden that they have to remember, they have to pull out more paperwork, you know, maybe that paperwork is lodged under the back seat in the car, right? So if this is in the convenience of their phone, which they're using already, and, and, you know, as the world really adopts these uh, on a, you know, probably minute by minute hourly basis, <laughs> whether or not that's good is, is a different question, but you're, you're using something that you're very used to using. It's not a new behavior that you have to adopt. Um, and so let's harness the power of that for, for good in these types of situations. So um, I'm thinking a little bit ahead, then I'm going to pull you back into reality. But <laughs> in, in the future, can you imagine a world where the patient journey is similar in an app format in either trial or clinical care settings? Yeah, I can. I imagine one most definitely in which the the app situation would actually help facilitate rapid clinical response um, so that patients and caregivers could um, sit, not, I don't want to say sit back and relax, but they could be less stressed over, you know, this happened, should I be worried about that? Right. Oh my goodness, that, you know, all of a sudden I have, say, constipation or diarrhea. Is that something really important that my clinical team needs to know? Should I call the nurse's station? You know, should I talk to them? I think those are the types of things um, that would relieve a lot of anxiety. Um, and we've been doing some work um, recently in which we actually compare the patient's perception of how they feel with actual sensor data that's capturing, you know, the specific, say, let's just say daily step count. So is the, is the patient reporting that they're highly fatigued, you know, and what does that correlate to? Is it 2000 steps? Is it 5,000 steps? You know, what does it specifically look like from a sensor data perspective? And I think that's where um, there's a lot of power in putting together sort of that qualitative plus quantitative data and doing it in a seamless way so that, you know, the patients are not it's not disruptive. It's just embedded as part of their standard, you know, daily life in a very low key way. So I'm thinking about this in a real way now. Yes, that was visionary, but maybe it's not that far away. Mm -hmm. As you said, you're, you're doing this right now. I was thinking as you were speaking about my own aura ring feed, which told me today, you're not doing a good job on some things <laughs> right like you need a course correction and it made me think wow would that be a helpful thing to a caregiver to see like my patient needs a course correction on x or y and is that sort of what you're talking about here both for the patient and their caregiver with these app enabled um, behavioral modifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a combination and it might depend on the person. Um, you know, if it can be driven fully through an app, I think the clinical team would be a little bit um, reluctant to, to let that be the only source of interaction. Um, but I think if the data, you know, are presented efficiently and effectively to the clinical team um, with parameters that are sort of preset, you know, kind of a green light, yellow light, red light scenario. Um, you know, this, this patient looks fine. Everything is tracking as expected. That's the green light, right? The yellow light is more, there's a little bit of concern here. Um, you know, and maybe this would be based on millions of pieces of data points from millions of different patients. If we could pool these data sets together, we could learn tremendous amounts. You know, if it's um, and we could do it based on specific characteristics such as age or gender, right? Let's say a medication, you know, is, is better titrated by weight, right? And so, you know, women usually weigh slightly less than men. You know, is that something that we need to watch out for when we're not really sure if it's the right dose? Um, and then the clinical team would know to reach out, you know, especially if the data were showing kind of a red light scenario where, you know, this, there's really a sharp decline in this patient's health while they're, you know, outside the clinical setting, you need to call them within the next few hours, 
right? And the yellow light might be more of a 24 hour, 48 hour scenario. Um, but then the, the patient and their caregiver could probably rest. This is what we've heard from them in our interviews anyway, right? Is that they would rest more comfortably knowing that if that data was worrisome, the clinical team would reach out. Um, of course, you always have the, you know, caveat of if you feel as the caregiver or the patient at home that something is concerning, definitely call the clinical team like that. That wouldn't go away. Right. That would remain as the standard that's in existence today. But this would provide another window in my mind to see early changes in a in a in a faster way so that you wouldn't have to actually wait for the uh, family to call with a concern because you would know ahead of time that things were trending in the wrong direction and that maybe you could reach out and say they were constipated. Maybe they need a, you know, a stool softener or something. Maybe they need another medication to help offset some of the side effects of the, the medication that's addressing their specific condition. Okay, so now I'm gonna go backwards in reality and ask you, because I, I know you presented some data at ASCO, and I think you've highlighted some of the data, but you can go deeper. And I'm equally curious to ask you, how did the audience respond to your data? Were they surprised, or did they ask questions, or did they say, oh, yeah, that's completely logical? Yeah, I think um, there's a a common sense piece to it, right? That if you have early warning of health declines, you could take action. And so that part makes sense. Um, I think there is concern about how to um, have different individuals with different um, sort of historical use of technology, um, providing um, regular data, that continues to inform the clinical team. So, you, you know, you have to ask the right questions. What matters? When does it matter? Um, and so things like that were brought up that, you know, maybe this needs to be um, evaluated before implementation in that specific population, right? We were working with um, patients on with the Kaiser population on IV chemotherapy or receiving immunotherapy, which can have a lot of side effects and, and, and symptoms. And that's you know, part of why we, we chose those populations. Um, but that, you know, if you were doing, say, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, right, you'd need to be looking at different things and you'd need to test that those things were reliably reported and that it wasn't too much of a burden. And so that, I think that's very fair and, and accurate. Um, and I think those are things that, you know, could, could just be part of the standard operating procedure before you launch something is to, to do that initial testing and, and deep thinking, right? And to work with the both the caregiver and the patient to know what really matters to them. The clinicians will tell you what really matters to the clinical team. Um, and then you can combine those things in a way that's you know harmonious and, and that will capture the data remotely. Well, that makes sense to me, Ingrid. And actually, with the caveat that I am not a regulatory expert, what you just said I think aligns very closely to the FDA DHT guidance, right? Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. You cannot assume that the measures or the wearables you use are fit for purpose for the patient population. And you need to do some work to align both meaningful measure and um, ease of use before you put this into a trial. I think that's, yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a very regulated space. Um, it's a very um, cautious space, rightly so, right? People's health. And so I think, um, you know, that's a, that's a, a fair um, process to follow. And that's, you know, the FDA and other regulatory bodies are, are pretty clear in their guidance about, about that. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I do think we will get to a day, not too long from now, but this is a little aspirational, where in theory, there's going to be a public data set of what has been useful or meaningful and how you might use those wearables or endpoints in a digital way. But mm -hmm. I, I, it's still in progress. Let's say it that way. Mm -hmm. Agree. 
Yeah, and I think there's a lot more that could be done if we could sort of in a pre-competitive space, you know, have teams share specific data sets and, and learn from those. I think we'd make strides a lot faster. Um, and we'd also see where potential pitfalls are and and others could avoid those. I mean, you know, when it comes down to it, it's it's for me, it's always about improving the health of individuals, whether it be in a clinical trial or in standard care. Um, you know, even things like wellness, right? Which you're talking about the aura ring, you know, a lot of people are using that and maybe you yourself, Jane, right? For assessing their daily habits. And and I, I do love the visuals from the aura ring. I have to disclose, I'm kind of partial to those, <laughs> but um, I think that's a big important piece is people are more interested also in their general wellness and how do we help, help them achieve that? Absolutely. And I'm going to hold on this thought, but don't let me sign off without mentioning some work that came up today um, at DFARM about something that is about to begin to work on some of those uh, cross-industry data sets, not clinical data, operational data. But I'm going to reset the room, as is our habit. It is the bottom of the hour, and you are in the TGIF DCT Clubhouse, which we hold every Friday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time. Every week we have special guests join us to share their experiences or ask their questions about what's happening in DCTs. And today we're very privileged to have Ingrid with us from Medible, and she's really doing a lot of work to improve participant experience in clinical trials through DCTs and digital methods. But I, I hear very clearly you're in no way um, deprioritizing the patient's experience and care overall, be it in a trial or in the clinic. Right. No, this is this is a way to to enhance the experience to try to eliminate some of the barriers, you know, 30, 40% of patients drop out of clinical trials, for example. And a lot of that is the caregiver becomes overstressed. There's too much to do. They don't know what they're supposed to do when they don't feel like their voice counts. You know, these are ways to help enhance both, you know, retention in clinical trials to learn about um, declines in health early so that, um, additional treatment decisions can be made. Maybe there's a supplemental, um, medication they need, or they need um, to have a slightly different regimen, right? Maybe the chemotherapy has to be spaced out a little bit more or slightly, you know, a, a lower dose over a shorter period of time. There's different things that can be done. And then that would help those individuals stay in the trial and enjoy the benefit of that medication, right? So it's getting, it's getting to complications before they occur. That's part of the issue and supporting caregivers and patients when they're remote. Um, which is happening more and more. And, you know, a lot of people can't travel to things. And that was the original reason I joined Medible really was this, this uh, ability to reach people in a more decentralized way at their own convenience at, near their own home. Still a gap. Now, at this time, we actually would love people in the audience to raise their hands and come up on stage, the virtual audio only stage, and ask questions or share your experience measuring participant data. And I don't mean clinical data, but whether or not participants are finding these approaches to clinical trial methods useful and, and when it is and isn't actually helpful for them. We know, of course, that's an individual decision, but I have so many people asking questions, does this really help patients? And I think we're really curious. If you have data, you can share even more, Ingrid, and then if others in the audience have some to offer too. So raise your hand, and there's a little hand raising icon down at the bottom of your screen. If you have a question, I know there are some people in this room who are very actively involved in patient journeys and figuring out how to map what's working, what's not. 
So while I'm waiting, I'll just take a minute and say yesterday I had the honor of doing a really interesting, I thought, <laughs> presentation with a sponsor about DCTs in a phase one setting. Mm -hmm. Most people don't really think that that's a, a reality and kudos to the sponsor for being willing to try what we saw in the data was actually the dct method really enhanced participant experience uh sorry adherence adherence so about 90 percent of the eligible participants consented to use the dct methods for long-term follow-up and about 90% of the scheduled visits in the trial, which lasted for two years after the treatment phase were completed. That's pretty high, especially with that very, very long-term follow-up in a healthy volunteer patient group. But, or maybe and, the lesson learned was that trial got, um, iterated in midstream to add this optionality. And it meant that the sponsor never had the time to build in a direct to participant experience survey mechanism. Hmm. So that was their call to action. Like if we did this next time, we would ensure that we built that into the platform. And I'm curious how often that happens for you when you and your teams at Metable are implementing these trials or whether or not you get pushback from sponsors about doing that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we provide the software platform, right? So the protocol and the elements that are included are the sponsors, um, you know, and some of them have done pre-testing with the patient populations to try to understand um, what is the most necessary thing to collect and the right timing. Um, <clears throat> and there are different stages <clears throat> that I would say across the sponsor spectrum. Um, you know, there's, we work with small to mid to large size um, pharma groups. So they sort of have different timeframes and how they've been collecting their data and analyzing it. Um, but I think, you know, our advice is always you know, and to include components to assess, you know, is this really working for the, the people who are putting in the data, whomever that may be, if it's the caregiver or the patient um, or the clinical team, you know, what's working um, to get feedback, right, to conduct regular assessments. Um, those are things that we do recommend. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of our customers do um, respond to that. And some of them are already have that as part of standard operating procedure. That, that's actually really encouraging because I kind of got the opposite message this week at DFARM. Mm. Not that people aren't interested, but rather it's still not getting asked directly mm. to participants very often. Hmm. Yeah, the traction is, a you know, it's a, because you have, you have, so if you ask the questions, right, you need to know what you're going to do with the responses, how you're going to adapt right? Are you going to change maybe the frequency? Um, and, and this is part of why we're publishing what we've learned, right? So we found that if we increase the window of time to complete um, an ECOA from 24 to 48 hours, really almost 98% of the people could complete it within that 48 hour window. And what it, what it suggested to us, and then we followed up in some informational interviews with the participants was, you know, when people are sick or when they're really busy, as the caregivers are, they're often, you know, working plus taking, being a caregiver, um, they just can't get to everything right away, right? Like the most urgent thing may not be completing that survey in the mobile app. It might be important, but it might not rise to the level of urgency. And so we need to be conscientious about understanding their lives, the human perspective on you know what's going on with them and allow them enough ample time um, the grace to complete things within you know a less stressful time frame um, and i think that that's something that that i hope is observed in our publications um, that that's coming out and one that's just was just accepted so it should 
be out soon, but I think that's something to highlight, Jane. Um, so when should we watch for that to drop? <laughs> yeah, so I, I just actually pinged the journal the other day. You know, you submit and then you respond to input and comments and questions and then um, provide a new version and then they review it and it does take a while for it to get into the queue for publication because usually, well, it depends on the journal, but, you know, they've got their list of papers that will go out, you know, at least six, six months in advance usually. Um, so I'm hoping before the end of the year, um, but can't promise that because I'm not in charge of the publishing side. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll just keep our eyes on it. And now uh, this is self-promotion for DTRA, but now we have a little library that's growing. So Ingrid, oh. you could let us know when your publication is out there and we would integrate it into the library. Yes, fantastic. And I'm happy to send you, you know, the different posters and abstracts that we've put out at ASCO and then the current publication. So you can kind of put that all in there. I don't know if, are you, are you cataloging it yes. by key term so people can search? Okay. Yeah. It's tagged up the yin yang. So, <laughs> um, but with the aim of making it easy to find the topic of interest to the end user. And we hear from people that it's it's not so easy to find publications. So we're eager to receive publications, white papers, posters, any any of those materials that can help our community understand how do you go about this, what happened, and what would you do differently next time? Mm-hmm. I see right. Nisha did did put something in chat about her experience. I don't know if you're able to see that, Jane. I do see it actually. And Nisha, we'd love to hear from you if you're willing to come and share a little bit about what it was like to be in a trial, whether it was a DCT or or you were offered optionality or not. And if you're not comfortable, that's okay too. I will actually pull you or try to pull you on stage. You know, I'm admitting that uh, Clubhouse keeps changing things. <laughs> and I don't always get the message on how exactly to use their new features. So uh, Nisha, I hope you can join us. I'm not able to. I think she said Right. She had to, she didn't know if she was supposed to contact the care team over a holiday weekend. Right. And so how maybe, you know, being able to report stuff remotely that she knew they were monitoring would right. be advantageous up oh, there. She is, maybe she's, she's here. So please unmute yourself and then join us in the conversation, if you will. Hi, are you able to hear me? So sorry. I think I clicked, I'm still getting used to Clubhouse and clicked on the wrong <laughs> button. Um, but yes, I was uh, in a hybrid clinical trial last year. And I was in a situation where I had some biopsies as part of the trial, um, as part of my, I, I think it was actually part of my exit visit. And they were taking longer to heal than expected. And there was a suspicion that maybe they were infected, maybe not. Um, I had some back and forth with the clinical trial team over email, I should say, because it was not a very um, technology forward trial, let's say. And then it, you know, and then out of caution, the doctor prescribed some antibiotics, but they were very strong and I didn't want to take them unless I had to. And then we were getting into the holiday weekend um, and he had told me, you know, if I needed to contact someone, I could call the dermatologist who was the on-call dermatologist at the clinic. And to me, that seemed like a very big step to take. So, and I just wasn't sure if it was necessary. Um, and so bottom line is what I ended up doing was I had access to Teladoc in, you know, through my insurance and luckily it was covered. And so I, I ended up making a Teladoc appointment and asking this you know, doctor who had no knowledge of me or the trial or anything, hey, take a look, do these look infected? And she said, no, they don't. And so, you know, that gave me the answer I needed. But I think, you know, in retrospect, if I'd had access to technology that made it easy for me to just, you know, contact someone on the team, get a fairly quick response, you know, a very short interaction, I think that would have really reduced all the kind of deliberation, you know, that mm -hmm. I'd made with myself about, do I need to contact the team? 
do I not? It's a holiday. You know, should I just take the antibiotics and be done with it? But I don't want to because look at the list of side effects. So it's just a, I really think the technology would have just made it more seamless, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think it's a really important perspective and, and you know, the optionality to have that, I think would be a great addition for a lot of folks um, in, in trials. And, and we saw that it, it specifically, both the patients and the caregivers thought it would improve emotional well-being, right? And help them, you know, take better care of themselves and pay more attention. And that's one of those things that, you know, if you're worried about it, that's emotionally tough, right? If you're vacillating between, do I call, do I not call? You get, you get stressed and, you know, you're sort of feeling like I don't want to overburden the clinical team, but yet I'm worried, right? Those types of things I think are, are the real human side of participating that sometimes isn't fully observed from the clinical side. Um, so important input. Okay. So let's play for a minute and imagine that Nisha is going to join another clinical trial and, uh, and Medible is actually going to build the platform where she gets to participate. Do you at your, at, Medible in the engineering team or the product team have a standard set of participant experience questions you can offer to the sponsor and then get buy-in from Nisha about how's it going? Or is that something that is, and every trial is a snowflake situation? Hmm. Yeah, there are some standardized um, surveys that are asked as far as um, use of mobile tools. Um, some of them are quite extensive. You know, researchers love to ask lots of questions, which is not always so productive in this type of a setting. Um, so I think there, you know, there's there's key ones too, right? Would you sort of the NPS survey? Would you recommend this to a family or friend if they were in a similar situation? Um, you know, which is asked as kind of in a lot of marketing speak, like, would you recommend this product, you know, a washing machine or makeup or milk or something? Um, it's sort of a standard question, but it is one question. Uh, and we've seen different groups want to take maybe that one question or they they think maybe we'll take a smattering of a subset of questions. Um, you know, even the clinical team, there's a very extensive symptom survey. It's quite long. And uh, when we were doing the work with Kaiser, the oncology team said, these are the 12 most important things that we care about. If we see these things, um, you know, becoming uh, worsening uh, symptoms with these 12 areas, then we're concerned. So let's focus on these 12. Let's not ask all 75. And so I think there has to be some thoughtful um, you know, brain power put towards what are the key things to ask that aren't going to then overburden the participant, but yet we'll get information that we can act on, right? So, you know, if you, if, and you can do sub interviews too, right? You've all probably been on, um, you know, a helpline with somebody and then it said, please stay on at the end or push one or two to stay on and answer questions or something. So you can get more in-depth input from a subset of people. Um, and that is something that I think I see a lot of folks considering, um, at least in the research space, um, not necessarily in the clinical trial space, because that has to be uh, a standardized approach. It's interesting because um, when I when I think about the patient experience, I'm actually separating that from the clinical data. It's more, was it easy to use? Did it help you? Was it... And actually, I think in one case I asked, could you have been in the trial if you didn't have these options? So it's that experience that I'm talking about is strictly about the trial, not its outcomes. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yep. And my other experience, and I'm curious to know if you've had this too, is sometimes we go down this rabbit hole and I'll say kind of overthink all of the questions that we have to ask. And when I say that, I mean, 
You want to be very thoughtful and curated, to quote Amir. And some tools already exist about which questions are, are appropriate to ask participants about their experience, courtesy of Transcelerate. Mm -hmm. So have you, have you had any experience using those sorts of questions? In our own research, we definitely selected specific um, questions that have been used and published in the literature. Um, I, I can't speak to what all is being included by pharma and you know using our platform. Um, we'd have to look you know at greater detail in that. I think, um, but I do. You know, there's also this concept of can you just use the app timestamp metadata? Um, oh to evaluate without even needing to ask specific questions so that um, you, you could see which folks are really using and putting in information versus those that are maybe struggling a little bit more and maybe there's a reason right maybe they just they feel more poorly we don't we don't always know but you can use that data and that's one of the papers that um we've just submitted um cool yeah, that's so, another so, watch this space then. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's really about how can we use the information to better inform what's happening and support the people in the trial. And that, I think, is a key piece without making them do more work because they're already not feeling great. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Dina, I see you joined us and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, thanks for the invite to speak up. Um, I just wanted to add that I have used the Transcelerate um, SPFQ in an ECOA situation, EPRO uh, for trials, and um, I think that's a good a good start. Um, they recently updated it to accommodate for DCTs, and it is a validated tool, so mm -hmm. um, it would be good to support Transcelerate and the industry. Uh, members that um, participate with Transcelerate. So I think it's, it would, I, I'd like to see further adoption of that uh, by other, um, by, you know, solution providers that want some good feedback. Did you find that it was easy for participants to complete? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, obviously we got it approved in many different languages. It was a global trial mm -hmm. and um, it's the, I think it's no more than five questions, very simple. Although um, I have a customer success background, so I do love uh, NPS right. <laughs> and, and um, yeah. customer satisfaction. It's super easy, one to two questions. And, you know, we, we all know, you know, how that, that are in the field know how that works. But um, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of supporting industry and, um, you know, Transcelerate specifically has something out there for that. So. Um, I would like to see, again, further adoption. Yeah, it's exciting they expanded for DCT. So that I think is, will probably help um, the uptake of it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll do a, a shameless mic drop here. Um, <laughs> Not shameful at all. <laughs> and I want to call out that when we published our new DCT playbook, we had asked permission from Transcelerate and City and ACRO and ACRP. And to the best of our ability, we integrated their published resources at the stops on the map we think are relevant. Mm -hmm. And so those patient-facing questionnaires that Transcelerate developed are there, but now we're gonna have to update the link Thank you, Dina, and invite Transcelerate to come and tell us how they iterated on those for a DCT setting. So Paige, new topic, please put that on the list for us to get scheduled. Yeah, and I think- I'm gonna drop a link to that map too in the chat as well in just a second. Perfect. And so I think, are they getting, um, they should be able to get data across the different users of those questions then, right? Is that part of their model? Transcelerates? No, um, I think I, I think the only one that can get the data back is the um, this I believe the sponsor that is using it in their trial. Okay, um, but they might be open to that. It's it's maybe just a new iteration on the model. So 
in the past iteration, and this was where it was a little tricky, um, the tools were built for deployment from site to patient by mail or email. Mm -hmm. And in a DCT setting, of course, you can do that a little more simply shielding the patient um, identity from the sponsor, but integrating it into a communication pathway that the patients are already using on the platform. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could act as a clearinghouse, Jane, for that field data that they're collecting and, you know, be able to look at it across different types of trials, different disease conditions, age groups, locations. Could be kind of cool if they would, if the user would agree to share in a, you know, non-threatening safe space, so to speak. Well, they might, but um, now you just <laughs> segue me into the thing I said, don't let me forget to talk yes. about. Um, so first, I want to say thank you so much, Ingrid. And I apologize because I was literally juggling hats while getting here today, but at D Farm, just prior to this session, which is why I was still juggling, I was in a discussion led by a panel of industry experts, many of whom are part of DTRA and Tufts University. Mm -hmm. And the point of the session was to lay the framework for a pre-competitive cross-industry collaboration to gather objective data on what's happening with DCTs with respect to operational metrics and patient preference. So it's coming. It's literally just kicking off, but I'm really excited that that is beginning. And, and there was a call to action from the stage for any sponsors who want to join to offer up their data in an anonymized way as part of this analysis framework that will be led by Tufts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's desperately needed in order to help people see that these methods are helpful or if they're not helpful, frankly, and whether or not there are differences between patient groups and therapeutic areas or even trial phases. Yeah, the details, you know, matter and who it's a fit for, right? And I think you've used the term hybrid a couple times, right? And so it might be that in many instances, you can do a lot for a lot of people remotely, but other people really prefer a more interactive face-to-face um, method. And that's yeah. actually one of the interesting elements that they're expecting to collect, actually, the degree of decentralization of a trial, which mm -hmm. is on a per visit basis, and also the use of a decentralized option at a study, well, at a patient level, aggregated up to a country level to a study mm -hmm. level. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to come on that, but um, that's an, another topic for another day. Just super excited that this theme of data continues to grow. And Ingrid, I want to thank you for being a pioneer on behalf of patients, and also in that hard work of measuring what matters and then sharing it with the whole ecosystem so they can use your research. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The human part always matters to me, right? <laughs> That's the, I think the theme that ties it all together. How can we do better? I think that's why we're here. Yep. So I am going to wrap it up just with a quick note next week. We should have Craig back in at the mic. I, I am still getting my feet at this, but thank you for joining us today. And I hope that you found the topic interesting and that you'll reach out to others who are here as well as to Ingrid to ask her questions. And then next week we have some special guests from a university collaboration in the great wide west of the United States um, to talk to us about 
their vision of helping remote patients participate in trials through an experiment that they're beginning together. So I'm super excited about it. They're very passionate about it. And I think you'll be really interested to hear how they're thinking about this and what they're going to do. Paige, what have I missed? I think you covered it. I was just going to say, yeah, University of Washington is all lined up for next week. So we'll look forward to seeing folks there. And this will be available on the podcast first thing Monday morning. I think we'll have some Montanans on the podcast too, or on the clubhouse next week. So it, I can't wait for that. And Ingrid, I want to say thank you again. I know you're incredibly busy and I appreciate you taking the time and sharing your wisdom with us. Absolutely excited to be here. So thanks so much. All right. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Thank you for joining. Bye.